This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Hi, everyone, and welcome to part two of our mini series called Mending the Divides, where we're looking at ways that we can build back better from the COVID 19 pandemic by becoming a church that plays more of a role in bridging the gaps and in bringing reconciliation wherever it's needed in our society. In part one, I outlined four stages that we need to go through as a church in order to meaningfully engage with any issue of division and injustice. These four stages were taken from the book called Mending the Divides, and they were see, immerse, contend, and restore. We spent most of part one discussing what we have seen around the issue of racial injustice, identifying some of the things that we've perhaps come to understand a little bit better during the last year. Today, I want to follow on from that talk by continuing to press into the second stage, immersing ourselves in the issue, and really doing two things that are super important during this stage. And those are building relationship with those who are impacted by the issue, and secondly, spending time listening to their experiences and to their views. So today, instead of me talking, I'd like to introduce you to some of our nearest neighbors in the city, Pastor Ossian and Pastor Fatima Sabanda, who lead a church called God's House, which meets at the Premier Inn, which is literally just a stone's throw away from where we normally meet at Seven Vineyard at the station. I met Fatima and Ossian through prayer breakfasts that are organized for church leaders, and I've loved getting to know them a little bit recently. I believe they're an important voice for us and for the wider church in Bristol at this time. So hi, Pastor Fatima and Pastor Ossian. Thank you so much for being willing to join me and uh, for uh, joining us at Seven Vineyards uh, as we get to know you as our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Christ in the city. Um, for those who don't know you, uh, perhaps we could start just by hearing a little bit about you and about how you came to be leading God's house in Bristol. Well, thank you very much, Danny, and uh, the congregation. So we are grateful to share this opportunity and time together where we know one another engage. Uh, basically, we came to the UK in 2001. Fatima came first. Our desire was to go to Bible school because uh, or Bible college because we have been involved in ministry in Africa in a practical way, but we did not have a formal Bible school training, so to speak. So we felt we needed some uh, input in that area to grow in theology and understanding that. That's how we came here. So we did our Bible school and we were in a church called Carmel. They had a Bible school there. So we attended the two-year Bible school there. In the end, when they noticed our gifts, they ordained us and we worked there as full-time, full-time in the pastoral team and also teaching in the school because we are teachers by profession. And then as we stayed there, we spent 10 years there serving while we were still studying. And then it so happened that in our last year of study, 2010, Fatima was completing her master's in theology. So we were planning of going back to South Africa. And then we just decided before we go back, let's invest in a smaller church because the church where we are was a multicultural church. And then it needed a bit of support in that they do because we were in a bigger church altogether. So we just decided, why don't we go to a smaller church and give our last year there? So that was the idea. Little did we know that God had other plans. In the end, we ended up being leaders of that church and we're still there 11 years on now. So I can say we are there really by God's working and doing because we didn't plan it, we didn't envisage it, we didn't see it coming. But through working of events, God kept us here. And we are still here now, hoping to go back as we came in, hoping to, but we're still here. And now we're permanently here as citizens. So we are here for, for, for keeps, I should say. Well, that's wonderful to hear a little bit of your journey. And can you tell me a little bit more about God's house, about your vision, the work that you do, and maybe about your congregation? Okay, thank you very much. Um, God's house is a multicultural church, dynamic, 
And uh, each year we produce uh, an annual report. I'll just email you this, which summarizes all the work that we do. And there is a summary of our vision inside and our objectives and our strategy. So we try and a bit of what we do in the annual reports that we do. This way we feel we can pass it on to people and then they can read and see what we do. But we've got about 24 nationalities in the church. We've got people from Guatemala, We've got people from uh, Spain, from the Philippines, from Brazil. And then what are the other different places that we have? And obviously Africa and different plus. So 24 nationalities that we have in the church. So we are quite a, a broad multicultural church. And then our vision really is summed up in four words that we describe. So we say we want to be a church that is home away from home. For anybody who is not at home in Bristol, we want them to find a place. So it means to be a church where all people groups are at home and we prepare them for having the ultimate home. So that's our vision in summary. And then our mission statements is just connect and engage. So that, that's our, our thrust forward, our motivation, connect and engage, connect and engage, connect and engage. And then we engage communities by impacting and transforming lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But whichever way we connect, I was telling you about being a census officer now, that's my way of connecting. And in there, I will engage with people. Already I engaged with one of the men who is a believer there, and we have linked up. So we take opportunities where we can connect and engage with people with our ultimate plan or, 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 or program to share the gospel eventually. So that is the mission statement, connect and engage. And then our strategy really is brighten the corner where you are. So that, that, that and, and, and it comes from the book or, or, of the Bible where it says, make a difference wherever you are through faith and good works. So that is our, our three key role on the vision, the mission, and the strategy. And then we've got key values, core values that we work by. And the first one is holiness. And in holiness, really, we are talking about acting with sincerity, openness, truthfulness, accountability, integrity, and honesty. So that's what we consider under holiness. It's not something that will give you a glitter or a spark on your face. Like it's these attributes that bring out the holiness of God. And then the next core value that we stand on is respect. And by respect, we realize that we're in a community that is different to us. So we give due regard to other fellow human beings, irrespective of culture, gender, faith, race. So that's what we mean by respect, because we know God made us differently. And then the next one is charity. So here we actually talk about giving of our resources to serve the kingdom of God and mankind. So we emphasize that a lot. And then the next one is excellence, to say a commitment to exceptional practices that translate to extraordinary results in everything that we do, trying to show God we are not mediocre in anything that we do because we are told, love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, your strength. So everything that we do, we need in excellence into it. That's how we drive. And then the last value is family fellowship we have realized that the most powerful entity that God created is family. So we, 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 we are committed to value and equip families as the foundation and success to our society. So our church runs through what we call departments and departments show our expressions. We've got the worship team, we've got the pastoral team, we've got the youth, we've got the multimedia, We've got the men's ministry. We've got the women's ministry. So in those departments, we identified four critical ones that we use as our channel to access the community. That is men's ministry. Through our men's ministry, we do our prison work to mentor men in prison. And when they come out, we engage them with the ultimate of meeting the core value of family fellowship to restore them in their families with good men who are good citizens through our men's ministry. We also run our football tournament, the legacy football tournament with the men's ministry to engage our young boys in the community to see how they can come in. Then we have our women's ministry 
which is called hope for every woman. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, that's a wow factor, woman of worth. So here we do programs where we empower women from all ages to be confident about themselves, to be proud of themselves, to appreciate themselves, to contribute without fear in society and make them whole and holistic contributors in, in, our, in our community. So they, we do uh, mm, women conferences, women mentoring, and soon they'll be going into the women's prison as well to touch that area. So that is the women. And then we've got what we call CARD, the Creative Arts Department. So this comes with our worship team through music, playing of instruments, training of instruments, dance, drama, poetry. Those are the things that we can actually take to the community and they feel part of it. It's our way of engaging with them. So whenever Christmas time, our cards go to, to the streets, they sing Christmas carols, they go to hospitals, they sing Christmas carols. That's our way of engaging. We are connect and engage, connect and engage. So we do different things like writing music, releasing music. We've got about eight songs now as a church. And then the last one is called Yay, Youth and Young Adults. So in that area, also, we go organize youth retreats. We use our youths a lot in the areas of their spheres. So those are the four areas that we call our arrows into the community. And then we basically work around those coupled with our Sunday services and everything else that we do. But that's in a nutshell, the little bit of what we do with collaboration with other churches. That is amazing and wonderful to hear the, the vision and the clarity of vision that God has given you for our city. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and if I can maybe ask uh, Pastor Fatima, uh, it's obviously been a difficult time for everybody during this pandemic. Uh, I was wondering how it has affected you and your church family, um, whether you can give us any insight into some of the challenges that you've been facing. Yeah, thank you, Dan, for this opportunity to just have a chat together and uh, educate each other about uh, what is going on around us. And also thank you to Pastor Osien as well for the insights of exactly what our vision is and the outworking of that vision. And I'm sure you heard when he was describing our vision, he gave one of... Uh, our core uh, focuses as the family. And being a family church, COVID has affected us as a family in that the most important aspect of our family life as a church is coming together. Family do stuff together. Family share life. And... Uh, the forsaking of the gathering together was prohibited in the Bible. So imagine the taking away of gathering together abruptly. It's not like we were warned slowly to say in the next few months, start preparing to shut down your Sunday meeting as a family and also prepare to shut down your Wednesday meetings in your smaller areas shut down your youths coming together every Friday to hang about to keep them away from trouble. Start shutting down, you're going to be shutting down children's fellowship, them, the children coming together and growing. Everything that makes us who we are was taken from us. And that affected us because we were not given also that time to maybe psychologically make adjustments, emotionally make adjustments, and socially make adjustments. It had to happen very fast. And without enough resources uh, for us to be able to switch immediately into technology and start broadcasting. So that was a challenge in that most of the people from our backgrounds come also from cultures that strive with doing things together eating together. It's a big aspect of our lives without necessarily making appointments of let me check in my diary when you can come. Most of us have come from backgrounds that we, it's obvious that we do things together. So that was an impact because in doing things together, especially also in the lifestyle setting, 
that's where you you are known in a smaller grouping and there's intimacy there and if you have challenges the first port of call is your life cell and all that was removed from us so that was a challenge it was loss of the 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 hugs the the time together the growing together the seeing each other practically was a loss and uh funding we were affected financially because we didn't have the resources that we needed immediately to do the services that could now move into zoom move into all these facilities we didn't have them we were not even on youtube in all those things so we had to uh, grow quickly and think fast and cry out to god we had also lost of uh, finances in terms of it was just the weekend of our annual international women's conference we had purchased everything and we put everything in place including paying for the building where we normally do it because we hire a nice place which allows women more space especially for the breakout rooms all that we we hire a bigger venue for women to feel comfortable and to provide spaces where if you have something eating you up and you want personal prayer you want to offload you want to do a bit of crying all that it had to be shut the day before the conference our guests had arrived some from all over the world they are in hotels that were pre-booked now all hotel booking had to be cancelled as well so that was another uh, setback and then we have uh, a big big percentage of our working force being in the health industry we have doctors we have nurses we have uh healthcare assistants and you know they all obviously became frontline workers and as frontline workers those are most of the people who got ill in our church the covid itself they got it on duty and obviously some of us being part of the a, a black community we were affected more and some of us come from those deprived areas where you live with your family you live with your loved ones you live with extended family so how will you isolate in a small house how are you going to do all that 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 which they were telling us was not practical in some of our people's lives because you are eight in a house you and your children maybe and the two nieces that have come from your 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 country of origins you are looking after we are not all uh, just having our nuclear families in some cases it's a luxury we have our loved ones we live with so obviously if one of us catches it we have no way else to go it means it's going to spread in the house so it would affect us more than others but then when people say it's affecting black people they don't know how it's because we are saving in these hospitals and in these places and when people are taking time off some of our people couldn't take that time off because if you take time off and you are the breadwinner especially for our single moms who will feed your children so you are forced even to go so that that was tough for us to see all this happening and another a way we were affected is failure to do closure with the loss of our loved ones because of the numbers allowed for funerals and for us when someone passes away it's not a matter of uh, you just uh, go to a uh, where you are in the parlor where you just kept we do services every evening until the person is buried where you are singing you are worshiping you are eating together that's how we can for each other that removes that pressure that is building inside of you and for us grief is shared practically so we don't ask can i come to your house when you lose lose a loved one we all go it's an expectation that's how we are and all that is to be removed so it means you are mourning alone in a house where you are alone you can't have your brethren come around you like they normally come so that again was a problem uh, for me i couldn't even bury a cousin in not even in africa in london here we couldn't go because the our numbers were not allowed were many and then we have a sister even from guatemala a brother she couldn't fly home to bury simply because of the travel bans and all this so that was some those were some of the issues that were affecting us and and personally in fa- family in africa 
We've been doing Zoom funerals. A lot of Zoom funerals just for you to have closure and watching that you can't be there watching your family hurting and they can't do it has been a, a, a problem. And also we have had to be financially constrained in that we have to now look for money to send for them to try and buy the masks, buy sanitizers and all like that. And even in the case like of bringing it closer home in an area like where my mom-in-law is, there's a problem with water. It's a struggle to get their water. We purchase water from here to a farmer who is in Africa there. We send money to him. We had to buy a tank for him. So when we are saying to people, wash your hands, sanitize, how do they regularly wash their hands without the water? Because for them, the priority is not washing hands, it's drinking the water to survive and cooking. And you are now saying to avoid this COVID, you need to continuously wash. The, it's a luxury, continuously washing hands. So we have to see that the person is keeping on going to provide because he has boreholes to get, we pay for that water, which people are saying it's just there. And for people with masks, you can't find the masks, even if the money is there. So it's been, and in our minds, it's a, it's a mentally challenging thing because we are stressing thinking, although God gives us peace, these are realities that we face. And it's not us only, we are thinking across the congregation because we are coming from different countries. So when we are sitting here just watching news and saying, these are the figures, this is happening. For us, what we are thinking of is, will they be there tomorrow? Is there anyone remaining? Because they don't also have NHS. So you pay to see a doctor. You pay to go to a clinic. And they don't have the money. So what do they do? They'll be texting us. If this one is ill, you don't just get to run to your GP to call all these facilities. So imagine, and now we are looking after our own who are ill in the congregation here. And now we must think about our own who are ill in Africa, Guatemala, France, Italy, they are dying. It's, it's, it has not been just as easy as let's follow the guidelines, hear what they are saying. Mm. We have to do jaw of all these uh, losses. Then we have loss of jobs again. Now we have to spread our resources because in Africa, there is no follow scheme. So the jobs ended factories were closed. Now we are, we are feeding households from the little that we earn. So that was it just us across. So it's just to show you that COVID is not affecting us locally. It's affecting us internationally. And even if we are not there, we are there because we have to do Western Union until you yourself have nothing and they are saying, God of Israel, can you help us? So those are some of the ways that it was affecting us and trying to cancel I'm also mourning. I'm needing to be comforted, but I have to forget my own loss to think about the sheep because as you are their shepherd, they don't realize that even a shepherd is tears that need wiping away. So you have to wipe your own fast so you can go and pick up the sheep. You cannot offload your struggles on sheep. So it's been a bit of a challenge in that all these factors that I'm mentioning, apart from what everyone is feeling, we don't despise, everyone is at a different challenge with COVID, everybody, it has affected all of us. It's just yeah. that us, it's dual, it's locally affecting us, and now we have to carry our families back home. So those are some of the things I can highlight about loss mm. and the challenges of COVID-19 yeah. on us. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. It certainly sounds really challenging as leaders and challenging as a church family. Being so multicultural and diverse, it comes with that additional challenge of connection and awareness and uh, love, you know, for family and loved ones in different places. So, yeah, we, we certainly think of you and appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, I'd like to move on to another challenge because, as you know, at Seven Vineyard, we're on a journey of learning about uh, and thinking about racial justice and thinking about what our role and what our response is uh, around that issue. 
So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your own experience of this issue from South Africa, but also here in the UK, uh, and what your reflections on it are. Um, yes, I think uh, for me, if I give uh, personal examples, it would involve South Africa and it would also involve Zimbabwe, where some of our family are. Uh, having been under a colonial uh, regime, your mindset is wired to show you that you will always be the underdog for, for white people. That's how you grow up. They are our masters. Obviously, and again, in South Africa, it, it was a law. It was institutionalized. So you don't think, you know, I'm black. This is where we belong. They are white. This is where they belong. And the sad thing for me is that uh, most of the people who have been pushing for these racial injustices have been using the word of God to do this. And uh, the text that has been popularly used is found in the book of Genesis chapter nine, right in the beginning uh, for, for Noah. So they say when Noah, if you go Genesis nine, when you start from verse 18 going down until the end of the chapter, you find that it is said that when Noah was drunk, he, uh, among his three sons, it is Ham who saw him first. And Ham then went to tell his brothers, Shem and Japhet, the story that their father was uh, exposed. But they say then Japhet and Shem covered their father and walked backwards. They didn't look at him. But they said, but Ham looked. So then when Noah woke up from that uh, drunkenness, he was told that Ham looked at you when you were naked. And then Noah cursed Ham and, 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 and said he's cursing Ham and Canaan, Ham's son. And then he said, in the case that he pronounced, he said, you are going to be a servant for the rest of your life. And you are going to be a servant of servants. And also you are going to be a servant of shame and Japhet for the rest of your life. And we, as black people, are defined as Kushites, the descendants of Ham. So that means our lot is to be servants for the rest of our lives. And they say Ham was dark-skinned like us because he was cursed. And then they say the Shem and Japheth were light-skinned. So that means we black people are servants of servants. So we are servants of white people. That is where it's coming from in many quarters, apart from when it was now popularized and institutionalized, but it was passed on from these biblical roots. So that meant within the church setting in South Africa, when they were discriminating and, and, and doing what they were doing, because you were thinking the church would be better. Sinners don't know better, but we who are bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are family. We shouldn't be treating each other, but then they use this verse to say this is our place. Even in the church, we are their servants. Anything we do, we have to do, make sure they are comfortable first. And then services were not allowed to mix. And then when the independence came in South Africa, things changed, but mindsets did not change. We were still seen as Kushites who are servants of servants. So when you are born black, you are already born a servant. And when you are born white, you are already been born as a master. So to remove this from their heads is taking serious renewal. And it's a slow process because people are still stuck at that, believing that. And also our parents were the ones who are their slaves. They are their domestic servants. They are their masters. And with the children of domestic servants, our lot is also to be domestic servants. If, if our parents didn't, by good grace, get the revelation of sending us to school. By now, those were our jobs earmarked for us, cleaning and cooking for white people for the rest of our lives. But we want to thank God for the progress that has been made. Sadly, some people are still practicing this, and we cannot remove it from them until they get the revelation and understanding of misquoting of, of scripture. This is not what it is all about, but people have run with it. 
And I, that is also what was happening even in America and wherever where we are looked at as Kushites. When I came here, I was thinking it's easier in England. Growing up, we grew up knowing we are black. You know, you know it. And it, it becomes like a stereotype and a conditioning that this is where we belong. When you get to know Christ now, as he teaches you, you become confident in God. You grow, you get education. Education gives you a voice. And God blessing you makes people quiet because the results of God are different. In the UK, I thought it would be a different story. But on my arrival itself, the church I first went, they stopped me by the door. And I was thinking that I've come to England because I heard British people are very friendly. They are kind. They can be diplomatic about things, but they are not racist. That is what was believed. But when I came here, before I could do anything, I found a name of a church. The same week I arrived, I was excited to say, at least Sunday, I'm not going to fail to fellowship. I went and I saw them advertising Saturday. Saturday, I went on the door itself. That's when I was beaten away to say, you are not welcome. You can't come in here. And I'm saying, but this is a church. And they are saying, yes. And anyway, today's event, you need money to get in. And I'm thinking, okay. How do they know I don't have money? Not that I hate it, but how do you know I don't have money? Already in your mind, I don't have money, I'm black. And then I insisted to say, no, if you are calling this a church, I am going and I push my way to say, I'm not allowing this again in my life. I am not going to be oppressed. I went in there and I saw, oh, I'm the only black person. You could hear a needle dropping in that building when I walked in. And yes, they were having a fundraising for missions, which I found very ironical to say, I'm missions. Why can you not accept me? You want to be happy to send money to India and to Africa. The African is here. Why can you not embrace me? I was not meant with friendliness. I was not, it was, it was a hostile environment. So I had to leave it. And I left and I went back home, gutted. And until I, I, I saw that this thing is not only at home. The mindset somehow is here because why am I being refused to be in? Why can't people greet me? They struggled with me there and I left. So in another setting where we were engaging here in this country, we realized that we're being discriminated against because the white brethren who were even newer than us were the ones who were getting a promotion and being recognized and being given privileges which we were not being given. And we realized that, oh, ah, my goodness, is this still happening? And you find even sometimes in shops you're trying to buy, you are being looked at funny. My daughter was searched for nothing, trying to shop in Primark. After that, they followed her. She's going to change. When she came out of the changing room, they are following her. You know, things like that. Say, why are you following the security, stopping it, wanting to, to check? Let's see what's in your bag. How do you know I've put something in my bag? In schools, you find the same. So we realize that this injustice is in the minds of people. And if people, uh, people will go also some places where we go and you find we are in these meetings, maybe there's only OCNI as black people in there you would find that people are not as comfortable as they should be around us. But when we, they are with each other, they are chatting, they are laughing. With us, there's a bit of a, a tension or, or, or something that we cannot describe, like it's an atmosphere that is making them uh, not understand our presence there. So I realized this injustice and this understanding of the difference is, is, is living with us. There could be many uh, things I could cite that have happened, but even to compare how white missionaries were received at home, they were received with both hands. They were celebrated. They had privileges. Their children had privileges. They didn't fight to become citizens and stuff like that in a very difficult way that their applications are tough. We are not received the same way that our white counterparts were received as missionaries being given big houses, 
accommodation was easy for them. We worked in their houses. We saw how missionaries are. Our parents worked there. We saw. We were wishing to be missionaries. And when we are missionaries here, it's tough. To be citizens has taken us a very long time in my family to bring it closer home. Ose and I are the only citizen, British citizens. We've just submitted an application for our older daughter now. Why? To raise 1,350. Takes a long time for us. It doesn't come natural. As I told you, we stretch the resources. Now we have our daughter who is 17, who is going to be turning 18. We are now fighting to raise money for her, to apply for a citizen. She was born here. It's not like she's a stranger, but she was not born to British people. She was, I gave birth to her at the South Mid Hospital here. You would think it's easy. Now we are working at you heard Ocean saying he's doing a census job. He's a pastor. The reason why he has taken this part-time job as a pastor is to try and raise money to pay for citizenship for our younger girl who is turning 18 in May. We don't want her to turn 18 before she's a British citizen. Why? Because she will have to apply alone. We are missionaries. We are fighting just to be here so we can do the work of the Lord in this country. He has to stretch himself to just do citizenship. This is an injustice because when they came to us, they didn't have to do all this to apply one by one. They were granted privilege because they were accepted that they have come to help us morally in our nation. This is what we are doing, but it's not the same for us. So these injustices manifest themselves in different formats. So how can we as a, a church that we are getting to know you and you know us help us? I believe start just by knowing us. If we start building a relationship and getting to know each other and let you into our insights, if you come home closer to us and we come home closer to when we are chatting, maybe over a cup of tea, over something, you'll get to know more about us and you'll be saying, wow, is this what is happening? We had no clue. And we also learn about you. You will teach us. It's your country. You equip us, your history, your things. Then when we both learn and we cross-pollinate, we are stronger together. That's what I believe. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Can you say a little bit maybe about where you think those prejudices come from? So you mentioned you know, the, 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 the use of the Bible. And to be honest, I had never heard that passage until a few weeks ago. Uh, I came across the use of that passage to justify racism or slavery. But for most people, I'm sure they're not even aware of that. And yet your experience in South Africa and then here, but maybe in a slightly different way, why do you think we hold these blind spots or prejudices to, towards other people? I think some of it is inherited. It's passed down to us by our environments, because your environment shapes you. So if you come from a family that does not understand other races and other cultures, and you just grow up, all you know is what's in your house. And when you see people who are different to you, you might think uh, you don't know how to celebrate difference because you were not raised that way. If you are not taught to be hospitable around people, you are not going to be hospitable. And also, if you already grow up feeling your skin is better than others, the skin color is better than others. You don't have to be told that person is black. You can see they are black and you think we are better than them. And also if you are black, if you are not taught that you are unique, embrace who you are, have self-esteem, no one is better than you, we are all equal under God, you can grow up automatically thinking they are better than us, so that's how you behave. They may not have to tell you, but it's in you grow up with it because that's how you are exposed. But when you are now going through exposure, when you listen to debates, when you look in, when you hear news and things that are happening across the world, that's when your eyes are starting to open to realize that ah, this thing that I've been believing is wrong. Some of it are it's adopted in society. That's how society is. The idea of pride and arrogance that I am better than others. This one is now a deeper level of it. It's just pride that you think you are better. And because you are better, you must be treated better. You must get more privileges. It's, it's you thinking you are better than others and not acknowledging that. 
we are equal under God. Okay, so when, oh, go ahead, Osin, do you have something to I add? Think, I think it's also systemic. The system put it in place to protect the minorities that were in power. And because of that system, and then it became like a, a law kind of in, in quotes to say, this is how it does. Like in South Africa, the system protected that and they used divide and rule to make sure they maintain the status quo. And that way they were able to enjoy the benefits by suppressing. So they put it as part of law and in the system. So when everyone else grows up, the system now becomes their educator and their parents. And then they, so that's why you find that in most of countries in Africa, they these liberation struggles, liberation wars, they were fighting to liberate themselves from the system that was there. So the system actually cultivated it and nurtured it, and then it thrived under the system. Unfortunately, and you, that system came in the church as well. And would you say that is true here in the UK, even though it, it looks different to maybe how it looked in Africa, but it's still true and still present here? Yes, it is true, because our problem is if you are different to me, you are a threat. If you are different to me, you are likely an enemy. So it's in the system. I'll give you an example. When we came here, we tried to rent a property. A, a, a friend of ours told us there was a property. Then I called. And then when they picked up my accent, just like that, they said, it's gone. It's taken. And then when I told our friend, she phoned and then said, it's available. And then in the end, I called again. They said, it's taken. So we had to drive together with our friends to the offices. And she went ahead of us and they offered her the place. And then she said, actually, I'm actually talking for my friends here because on the phone you told them it's not there. So they were embarrassed and gave us the place. So where would that have come from? So it's something like what Fatima is saying, the system made it a culture and part of that to say, when you are like this, you are not part of us. So those are the challenges that uh, I say it's more systemic. It is happening here. I tried to apply to be a chaplain in the army. I struggled to get in there. The reasons I was given were immense. In the end, they said, you are too old. But when I went to the offices, they say the cutoff for a chaplain in the army is 50 years. I was 40 at that time. I did it. So you, you find it there. There are actually places where you, you can't be here. You can't be here. Even when I started in the prison, it wasn't easy for them to give me access. I had to come in through somebody, a friend of mine who I was accompanying, until they saw my effect there, then they gave me clearance. But before that, it was a struggle. So it's a system that identifies black as criminal. That's why when you walk a street, somebody is coming with their handbag, they clutch at their handbag. And yet I'm thinking, I'm actually, I could be safer than you as a vicar. In this, so it's the system that is taught us those things. Yeah, that's very helpful to understand a little bit more. So, where do you find hope? Um, is where do you find, maybe you know, in the teaching of the Bible or in Jesus, things that can help us to challenge this racism, this prejudice in our society, in our own hearts? I think uh, I love Jesus. Because Jesus died for all. And uh, I love the way Jesus was radical in his mission here on earth. That's why he was not understood. That's why he was called he said, a friend of sinners. And uh, what I like about him as well is the way he made heroes out of underdogs blessed me. And I thought this, he was giving a teaching. Uh, I think we all know, most of us know of the account of the good Samaritan. Jesus, in, in that story that we're given, who is my neighbor here? The hero that is being made, the one who did the right thing, the one who was kind, the one who was relevant, the one who rescued, the one who ministered was a Samaritan. 
it's not written the story of a good man. And it's not written the story of a good rabbi. It's written, even the, the, the rabbi left. <laughs> it is mm -hmm. written, it was a good Samaritan. And when we learn about the history of the Samaritans, we will see that these were the ones that were looked as underdogs, looked down as underdogs. Uh, there was a lot of prejudice against them. Uh, and they were not even valued at all, the Samaritans. And there was nothing to be called good about a Samaritan. But Jesus said, the good Samaritan. And he, and, and he said, we should do likewise. Do likewise. When he left the person in the inn and he said, I will come back. If there are any bills, I'll take care of it. This is the underprivileged, no status person, marginalized person. But Jesus lifted him and said, that copy, do like what he did. He's saying there's something good about Samaritans. Don't look down on them. There's something good. If you get to know them, if you work with them, if you work with them, you will benefit from what is in them. And again, the story of the woman at the well. Jesus didn't need to pass through Samaria. Again, there. But it says he diverted. Even the disciples were wondering, why are we going through Samaria? And he said, I need to go through there. He was trying to show them that he's not going to follow boundary prejudices, geographical prejudices, and all this is going there. And again, in there, that's where he taught us about the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John 7, we are told, out of the belly shall flow rivers of living waters. It's all in the same account that Jesus was teaching. And he went there where it was not going to be allowed. And to crush this uh, superiority and prejudice, the Samaritan itself, it was drilled in here that we are not like them. We only worship in this place. They worship at that place. We can't even mix our worship. Jesus was removing prejudice, spiritual prejudice in places of worship. He was removing it, and he, he taught there that uh -uh, it's no longer you are worshiping on this mountain or on that mountain. It's no longer you are black. It's no longer you are white. It's no longer your de denomination, your church, your mountain, your earth, or wherever. He said, worship, he redefined it, and he said, it's in spirit and in truth. It is no gender. He broke down all that. I find comfort in how Jesus did it to say, okay, in my heart here, I can receive him. And I can worship him in truth and in spirit. It's not the place where I am. It's not the color of my skin. It's not whether I'm a man or a woman. In Christ, I only have to worship. In truth, he taught it again. He was showing them, remove prejudices. Remove marginalization. Remove looking down on people. Because Samaritans, who are you? But Jesus is saying, ah, even you Jews, who are you? Even you who think you got it. The issue is worship God in truth and in spirit. In another place, for me, again, it has got to do with Samaritans. <laughs> you know, in the account of lepers, Jesus cleansed them. But the nine who went away, it was almost like an entitlement since we were supposed to, you, you are supposed to cleanse us. But he said, one came back in that account. And he came and he's the one who came and said, thank you. And the Bible says, Jesus said, this one, who came back and said, thank you, was made whole. He got the extra. And that was, again, Samaritan person, the underdog, the marginalized. So I can see in the heart of Christ that he lifts the lowly. He raises them. Women who were rated less than dogs in their first century time, Jesus allowed them, the woman with the issue of blood, prejudice against women, Jesus dealt with it. He allowed her to touch him. And he said, daughter to her. There's a lot of cases where Jesus was just rocking their boat by doing this differently, by going to those who are marginalized and lifting them up. He even said he came to seek and save the lost. Who are the lost? We who are considered the lost are the ones Jesus said, I came for not you visitants who think, I mean, you who think you've got it together. I came for them. So, I find if we follow Jesus, he said, we should humble ourselves in the scriptures. There's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no this. If we follow his heart, 
of being a servant of or and Jesus was not saying Jews are I don't want them I didn't die for them or what no he, he just did inclusion it's not that uh, other people are better than others no Jesus not saying that that's why he says the poor you always have he didn't say I remove all this poverty but his narrative was to be the savior of all mankind so if we follow his heart and open up our our hearts to each other we can realize that actually there's something good in that Samaritan brother, whatever that looks like to you. It doesn't have to be race. It can even be in the church. It can even be a sister against a sister. brother. Jesus removed prejudice. When we consider others and esteem each other and realize we are family, I think all these things will be sorted. Amen to that. Yeah, that's a wonderful source of hope, looking at the example of Jesus. And Pastor Ossian, as his church, as his body, and as a city center church in Bristol, um, who is on this journey of learning about racial justice and reconciliation, what advice would you give to us to continue on this journey to become a community where everyone feels welcome and to play our part, you know, where, where reconciliation is needed? I think, I think the first thing is to be open-minded and to trust God that uh, there is no harm in embracing people who are of different culture to you because uh, man is really a spirit. Spirit has no color. And the easiest step forward is to make an effort to step out of your comfort zone. If there is a program in one such church across the road, step out and go there. Just, just go out and participate and see what is happening. And then if you have got something in that, in your space also, go out and invite somebody and encourage them to come in. And in your inviting them, you'll realize, understand that it will not be easy for them to come. They might need a bit of support because of past experiences of this treatment. So they are afraid to come into that space already because of past pain and wounds. So that there is a lot of that extra reaching out to that because you won't know me until you get into my space. Even this interview, though we are blessed to be open, but really you won't really know me until you come to my house and see me leaving my socks on the couch and you see me uh, blowing my, my, my nose and just leave there and you see my wife picking it up. You, it's only in my space that you want you know me more. So our problem is we know each other at arm's length. That is why we will not get the germ out of the hearts that God has given us. So I think the best way, make an effort to pull down the walls, get into the programs these people are doing, learn what they do, see what they do, ask questions, invite them to your house. Our culture, you are my friend if you come to my house and I come to your house. As it is knowing each other from the offices, we are we is done and but when you step out and you come into my house, I know you are my friend because you consider my safety. So I think that is the way to engage with uh, African communities, understand what's major and what's a priority to them. So I, I pray our brothers, when we've got function, then we invite you. Just take some time to come. Obviously, the music will be different. Just go beyond the music. And then sometimes the expressions are different. Just go beyond. After the expression, there is something more which God has put as a gift. And eventually, like a marriage, you will see that the two will become one. I've never seen a husband and wife who become one at arm's length. So that's why a church is likened to a man and a wife. So we need that intimacy in what we do and to actually trust God that it will not harm you. One of my policies are, if I don't bleed, it doesn't kill me. I have no problem. I go in there. So I think we need to take that step out to actually be more intentional about it. I want to know. Okay, I want to know. I want to invite Osen and Fatima to my house. I'll cook them an English meal. And then we invite you to our house. We cook you our meal. In the process, you see how we relate to our children, how we apply our faith in our homes. That's the only way to come together. Otherwise, meeting each other and then you give me a hamper, I give you a hamper. 
that will not bring you into my heart and into my space. So we need to put those guards down and actually attend one another's programs, invite one another into our spaces, invite some people. It's, it's hard to stand in a pulpit. They will not invite you to their pulpit, but they will want to come to your pulpit because the idea is I, I will teach you, I will teach you. And in most cases, wherever we go, people think they are teaching us, which is good. But some of our experiences are theses already. They are theses already. So once we get to know each other, then we will actually benefit from the gifts that God gave us. Because my gifts are different to yours. And God has fashioned them to be effective. You might find that the gap that you need filled, I'm the one who has got the plug. And until I come with that plug, that gap will remain there. So that is danger of not embracing what God has put. It's like the Jews now. The only savior is Jesus. As long as they reject Jesus, that gap will be there. So we need to understand that we are a body and every joy supplies. So enlightenment and understanding will come from different perspectives, but we need to learn to embrace. That's why I was looking at the disciples of Jesus. There were so many of them. There were Galileans there, different. They were all nations. Even at the, on the fire when Jesus had been taken away, they said, from your accent, you are a Galilean. Peter could have, was trying to hide, but his accent was singled out in Jerusalem. So Jesus Christ tried to have all of them under the same table. That's why they were competing for places. Who is the greater among us? Who is the greater? That was the prejudice from their parents. Even uh, James, James, John's mother came and to say, can my two sons be on this side? On that? She was fighting for them because she felt in their head, our prejudice must bring us closer to Jesus. But Jesus Christ said, can you drink of the cup that I drink? I think that's my conclusion, Dan. There is a cup that we need to drink in order to get into fellowship. And that's what Christ said. He says, can you drink of the cup? Can you be baptized of the baptism that I go into? So there is this baptism that we need to get into that brings us into each other's space for us to understand and begin to value and appreciate one another. Well, thank you so much for putting a challenge before us and also an invitation. You know, uh, that's how I take it. And we would certainly love to continue, you know, this journey of getting to know one another and building relationship and trusting that God is leading us along the way. So could I ask either of you to maybe pray for us that we would have the courage to keep going, the wisdom to know next steps? Uh, we would really love that. Okay, thank you very much. It's been a privilege and it's been good knowing you. I'm very grateful for your heart and your life to reach out to us and get to know us. Now we have got another prayer item because now I find myself praying for you more. I hear Fatima praying for you. So that is the way to go. You have been part of that which we value and treasure and we pray. We want to see you succeed. We want to see you do well because of your heart that you have. So may God bless you and your family and the church there. So thank you very much, church, for getting time to spend time with us. I'm going to pray. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the time to share, to bear our hearts out in an effort to bring understanding, in an effort to bridge the gap, in an effort to allay any fears, doubts, and misunderstanding. I pray for my brother Dan, and I pray for the church. Mighty God, as, a, as they have a desire, Father, to reach out and be effective and be the soul that you created them to be, I pray that you will give them the strength and the courage and the boldness to step into the water that they will have the boldness to come out of the boat and walk on water to meet Jesus. Father, grant them the grace, grant them the joy of the journey. I pray that you will provide their needs. Above all, fill them with the Holy Ghost. Overshadow them with the Holy Ghost who is their helper so that they may tap into that world that you are calling them into for their growth, their development, and their future. I pray that you bless their effort, bless their project. Father, listen and answer their prayer, we pray. That whatever the request they have, let them see the fullness and the manifestation of your work. 
I pray for the grace and the confidence to walk in you, Father. Let the gifts of the Holy Spirit be manifest in them so that you lead them. We see in the early church that they stepped out the boldness of the Holy Ghost. Empower them, oh Father, so that they will carry, oh God, the entire working of Bristol and stitch this city together with your love and your grace. Father, I commit them to you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father for their awakened effort. Father, let there be spots of encouragement as they go through for them to know that the Lord is guiding them. We thank you. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Pastor Ossian, Pastor Fatima, thank you so much. May God bless you and all of your church family as well. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you for having us. God bless you. Well, a big thank you to Ossian and to Fatima for sharing with us today, for taking the time to record that interview. I loved hearing their heart and their vision, and I so appreciated their willingness to share honestly with us about things that are challenging and personal and at times painful. So thank you again to them. Now, I hope that for all of us who listened to Ossian and Fatima, there were one or two things that maybe stood out to us or caught our attention things that will stay with us and that will inform the actions that we go on to take as we seek to contend for racial justice. And as we continue on this journey of learning what it means to be peacemakers and agents of reconciliation in our city.